0: So, hello everyone and welcome to the new episode of the Women Economics Initiative podcast in which we cover the latest research in gender economics and inspiring career paths of female and non-binary economists. This time we are doing something a bit different as we are starting a series of a book club and I want to tell you a couple of sentences of what the idea behind this is. So a couple of us at We Are Bookworms and we thought it would be a cool idea if we decided to read one book together, discuss it, and that a dream come true would be to meet with the author and discuss uh, the book with with them. Luckily, we were able to realize this idea of ours and that's why we are meeting today to discuss the first book, book that we're reading in our book club. And that is book hatched out by Megan Tobias Neely. She will be my guest today and we will talk about her amazing career path and we'll talk of course on the book. Let me shortly introduce you to Megan. She is an assistant professor in the department of organization at the Copenhagen Business School and an affiliate of Stanford University's Women Leadership Innovation Lab. She studies gender, race, and social class inequality in the workspace and the labor force. Dear Megan, it is my pleasure to have you today as a guest. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I was just absolutely thrilled and touched that you all were interested in my work and reading the book. And it's just um, really wonderful to have this chance to talk um, and meet you and um, and many people in the organization.
0: <laughs> the pleasure is all ours, and I think it would be a nice way to kick off our episode uh, with a brief introduction of yourself. Yeah, so this is something that comes up in the book a bit, um, and
1: so I think it's really important to kind of situate who I am and how I came to study this topic, uh, which I do with the preface of the book. I was um, a, an undergraduate in history who uh, graduated knowing that I perhaps wanted to pursue a PhD, and I knew I needed to do intensive research. And so I wanted to test what, um, you know, that I could do that 48 plus hours a week and um, and feel excited and motivated about it. And so I took a job that was in a research support position in a large um, financial firm, what's called an asset manager. And in the interview, they asked me, do you know what a hedge fund is? And I said, no, because I didn't want to lie. Um, you know, I didn't really know what those were. I'd heard of them in the news, like many people. And they said, that's great, you know, for support positions like yours, um, we want critical things thinkers, um, rather than somebody who's trained in a particular way. So we'll tell you about it. So I ended up working in what's called the fund of funds unit of this large asset manager for three years um, after I graduated from with my undergraduate degree. And I did all kinds of background research. I did things like um, reviewing Financial statements of firms, both at hedge funds, private equity, and venture capital firms. I researched the people who founded them, uh, monitored news about the companies and what they did, um, and so I spent three years during the financial crisis doing this research. And it really piqued my interest in how these these sort of opaque, less known about. Areas of finance, um, how what their role is in our society, both in terms of shaping things like economic crises and crashes, as well as with respect to inequality. Um, they are top earners. Um, they drive in the U.S. They drive the top earner incomes even ever higher, um, and they're um, they're really powerful actors too. You know, the investments they make shape what companies do, what kind of management. Um, procedures they follow. And so when I ended up, partly that experience then drove me to the social sciences, um, because I wanted to study um, inequality through that lens. Um, And I started a graduate degree, a PhD in sociology. And my coursework just kept returning me to these questions about how finance is related to inequality, and I took a, a great course um, by an economist on financial crisis where um, he, who James Galbraith, who studies inequality and so he you know posed all these questions um, or and kind of piqued my interest in thinking about that connection and I had wonderful classes on gender and racial and class inequality from sociologists and so This um, really led me then to think about that experience I had in the industry and that kind of firsthand knowledge of it and drove me to study to kind of return to the industry and studying it using qualitative methods, um, in-depth interviews, as well as observing people um, at industry events.
0: That's that's really super amazing. And thanks a lot for sharing your story with us. And I think that it's important to mention that, uh, so after your experience uh, in private sector, so you decided to go back to college, pursue your PhD, and now you hold assistant uh, professor position, uh, which I think is super inspiring story to tell us that you really don't have to follow one straight path and always be in academia and not do anything else in your life to be able to land a job in academia. So I think that this is also relevant for everyone who is listening to us and maybe doing their PhDs in economics or some other related fields. So it's always good to have some other examples and stories to show that everything is possible if you enjoy what you're doing. So... The, the next thing that yeah I wanted to ask you, because I'm always curious about that, is uh, at which point did you realize that um, you would like to stay away from private sector and that you much more enjoy academia? And at which point you made decision that you would like to pursue academic career? Because I know that lots of us, that we have this dilemma uh, at the moment. Absolutely. So for me, you know, I partly um doing taking that job in
1: finance was about seeing if i would like academia i originally um wanted to become i thought i wanted to be like a high school history teacher and then i had this woman mentor uh, in under as a undergraduate who really noticed that i was had a sort of a, um ability at um doing research and doing uh, academic research and so she shaped my um interest in pursuing a phd and she said you know i think you're you know you'd be really good at this have you considered this? She pushed me to do a, um, um, a harder sort of research thesis capstone my senior year. And so I kind of credit her with planting the seeds for that. But then I think that experience working at finance really shaped my idea of the relationship between academia and practitioners and applied work. You know, it really drove me to want to do work that can have impact in both arenas. So, you know, I think. Uh, being able to write a book or do a research study and pr- print an article that is accessible to people working on the ground whose lives, you know, uh, it affects on a day-to-day basis is really important. And so that experience um, in finance kind of g- gave me that, that um, inspired me to do pursue that kind of work. And I think that it also, you know, then throughout my PhD, I always tried to keep in mind, what would I do? do in other realms if if I didn't end up um, pursuing a professor position or if that wasn't the right outcome for me. And I think it also helped to alleviate some of the stress in grad school. Um, It can often seem like it's the only way, uh, but talking to people who've applied all kinds of research methodologies to you know policy to industry um, to make impacts in those arenas uh, really helped me to see what what the realm of possibilities were, and I think it also helped to push my work to make it more accessible in that way. So it shaped the kind of research I did um, and wanted to pursue as an assistant professor. And that, you know, I had the experience throughout graduate school of just becoming more and more convinced that this was the right path for me um, in terms of what I like to do on a day-to-day basis of um, what kind of work inspires and drives me. Uh, but it also made me, you know, I, but I always want to also push that there are so many um, other options too. And I think that's really important to think about um, how what we do in the social sciences is so applicable in so many settings and can inform all kinds of work being done. So there's important roles for Um, people pursuing PhDs um, everywhere.
0: I really love your summary, and I think that I will especially re-listen to this part of the podcast later on uh, when I edit it and publish it, uh, because this really makes lots of sense. We should not put too much pressure on ourselves, and that can only help us give our best. Um, And you touched upon a bit on your female role models and your female mentors who Inspired you along your way. Uh, I I have to admit that in economics we do have a problem that it could be that you finish your bachelor studies, even master studies, and have only one or two female professors, and that's all. So sometimes it's really hard to relate to someone, to find female role model in your field, and to actually see that. Lots of things are possible for you. Absolutely. So I, you know, one thing in sociology, I think we
1: have um, higher numbers of women um, in in the field in general, uh, and so that's something that, um, especially if you study gender, you're uh, you we have m- many probably more role models um, accessible and mentors accessible. But I would, yeah, I would like to say, you know, my my grad school mentor Christine Williams played such a pivotal role in kind of cultivating my interest. Um, In these topics, pushing me to think bigger and more impactful. I think that was something really important that she did is to really um, encourage me to do work that has impact and can resonate with people um, in a big way and and to sort of think more broadly. About the implications of the work, and I've always appreciated that. She, you know, she also has always told me to write um, thinking about panache. So at one point, she told me, you know, put put the word panache in a sticky note on your monitor and and think about that when you when you're writing. Um, and she is a, just a, a truly talented writer who writes in such a captivating way. So that was great to see how she did that and kind of learn from co-authoring with her a little bit about how she goes about that process. And then I also had a wonderful. Um, postdoc mentor, Shelley Correll, who leads the Women's Leadership Innovation Lab at Stanford, and she does all kinds of work with an eye towards impact. So thinking about how can our research change practices on the ground? How can we set set up strategic relationships with people in industry and in policy to make sure that our work isn't being being done in in a vacuum and really make them um, those gatekeepers make them sort of research partners in the endeavor, um, and how to do that while also, you know, protecting your own research integrity, um, but but doing it in a really um, conducive and productive manner um, to forging um, kind of uh, constructive relationships. And she. So she's also someone who I think taught me so much about how to kind of navigate research as well as in the applied settings and think about how to craft it in a way that speaks to people, resonates with them, and can be applicable in, in everyday workplaces. Um, and so I've I've been really grateful for that. And I think both have also done a lot of sort of, um, you know, demystifying the process of academia and how how to navigate things like, um, you know, men-dominant networks Um in, in this field and how to kind of make sure that you're uh, asserting your voice and influence within the field um, and doing so in a way that also supports the work um, of other women as well as gender expansive people. So I've really appreciated that. And I think that, you know, for those who don't have access to women mentors, there are a lot of men allies out there who also will share those kind of insider secrets. Um, you know, a lot of men, and this comes up in my research, you know, a lot of men kind of take it for granted um, you know, how how to kind of get ahead or how it works, because it's so naturalized for them, especially when it comes to like social capital and relationship building. Um, but many of them will be very thoughtful and more aware of it. So, you know, keeping an eye out to who'd for, who in your networks and sphere does work that understands inequality or understands what kind of obstacles women might be facing, they're probably likely to have some Um, some interest and insights into how to to support you and and further your career as a scholar.
0: Amazing. I I mean, again, this part, super worth worth listening to. And I think that it will resonate with lots of um, PhD students in economics as well, as we also really try not to uh, do our research in vacuum, although we have tons of models and it might seem it's not applicable to the real world. In the end, we pursue all of our research questions because we want to connect it to uh, the reality around us and to really work with policymakers to try to really inform them on what could be improved uh, for the benefit of the whole society. Lovely, lovely. I always like hearing to inspiring mentoring stories and um, that, that you can actually find mentors all around you and that literally everyone who you meet is some sort of your mentor. So you learn something wor- important from every person you interact with. That's really cool. I think this was a nice intro and that we really got um, insight in who you are, what you're interested in, what is your background and now i'm super exciting to navigate our conversation towards your book Uh, your book is hedged out Uh, i have copy here with me Um, i'm almost done reading it and uh, we we already have formed our book club reading group uh, that all the people who are listening to our podcast can join if they're women economics members they they will be able to join our private linkedin group and to continue reading book with us because we do have discussions in there and uh, really try to summarize after each chapter what we have found out, what was puzzling for us, what was the biggest shock, uh, and and so on. So why don't we start uh, from the beginning, and that is how you got your inspiration for writing this book, and then maybe we can move on a bit Uh, On the writing process and how that all looked like?
1: So, I I think it goes back to that early experience working in the industry and seeing what happened, you know, witnessing firsthand what happened during the financial crisis of 2008 and how, uh, while You know, for actors in financial firms who really created the conditions that led to the crisis, they were generally able to rebound much faster. I mean, even though they faced a lot of downsizing and consequences for it, ultimately, you know, they paid less than average like households, homeowners, average workers in that crisis. And so that really made me want to study inequality and finance. Um, and so I pursued that, both thinking about it from a macro lens as well as a more micro. What's happening on the ground? And so this project actually started with from the kind of premise of like, you know, most hedge fund workers really don't, you know, they don't think about their work as having, um, you know, ra- uh, risky ramifications for society. You know, they think of themselves as investing um, money for average workers because most of their investments do come from pension funds and university endowments and other large institutions. Um, And so, you know, the original framing was, you know, why do these people with really well intentions, you know, quote unquote, good people, do work that has bad outcomes for society? And that was kind of my initial entry point. And then as I started doing more background research on the industry, I came across this early report Early to my research, this was in um, 2013, that was um, published um, by an an industry association that found that 97% of hedge fund assets were managed by firms led exclusively by white men. So there wasn't a single... Leader, you know, that, who is a woman or a racial and ethnic minority man. And so to me, that was really striking. And this is common with qualitative research um, and ethnographic research where we see something like that, some, some kind of outcome, and then we want to ask why that happens. How does that happen? So when I started this research, I knew it was very unequal, which makes it a great case study for understanding, you know, why these top earners um, are, are mostly white men. And there's also research on the top one percent of earners in the United States um, that finds that they are, you know, they match pretty well what the hedge fund industry captures. That they're mostly um, households whose earnings are driven by a man head of household, and they're mostly white households, um, over ninety percent. So that to me presented this interesting puzzle of how can i use this particular industry that captures trends and why income inequality is widening and how it's driven by finance to think about who these workers are and the work they do on an everyday basis so that's really what kind of led to this entry point into studying the particular puzzle of you know why it's so white man dominated by white men and how that that happens in terms of their everyday work and the way they organize their work
0: that was super interesting to hear and Thank you so much actually for writing this book because this is a question that I've been asking myself as well but I was not aware that someone covered it the way you did and that's why I think the book was so insightful to me because it really really explains even throughout history how this all came about and why it still persists so why don't we see any changes even though we are now aware of the situation and understand it much better but we'll talk about that in a second i think that we might use some time some time to talk about the process of writing a book I think that for most of us that's a black box we don't know much about that we think oh god it must be so hard and then you need to find someone who would like to publish it so would you mind sharing a couple of tips and tricks on uh, on writing a book
1: Absolutely. So my, you know, my mentor, my graduate school mentor, uh, Christine Williams at UT Austin, uh, is a prolific book writer. And she really trained us into a model of research um, of, that is based around book writing. So to do these kind of long, in-depth research projects um, and to explore them, you know, a book that gives you so much more space to kind of explore the empirical and theoretical nuance of a project but even though that was how I was trained, it still was daunting. So when I was writing my dissertation, I just couldn't imagine how this would end up turning into a book, um, you know, and, and she gave me advice on how to structure it kind of with a book narrative. Um, so thinking about that book, I, I did it from the beginning, but you still sit there and you wonder how is that going to happen, especially when you read these polished end products of books and they're, and they're so impressive, it's hard to imagine getting there. And there's a couple things that I think um, have been really helpful for me to think about. So one is I love, there's a book by a writer, Anne Lamont, called Bird by Bird. And it's really about the writing process. She's a novelist, but about thinking about it in steps and incremental and taking it off, like not, you know, focusing on that end product per se, but rather the building blocks. And I've heard um, academics talk about this in terms of stacking. So you take on one piece of the puzzle and you maybe write an article about it or or a chapter, and then you build outward from that. And so you, you don't it's helpful to have the kind of broader project and what, you, you, what you're finding and what you want to say about it, but you think a little bit more about you know, tackling one piece at a time and building up to that bigger project. The other thing I found really helpful was to read a lot of academic books that I liked, and there were two themes to that. So one was they were books that were very accessible. Um, so they're written in a way where there's theoretical richness, but also uh, you know practical applications where anybody, any practitioner, or anyone interested could pick up the book and read it and and find it interesting. And I and it was helpful to reread some of my favorite works um, in in uh, sociology and related fields that I had read for sort of their takeaways, you know, their research implications earlier. And then I reread them just thinking about them in the narrative. And I noticed all these little tips and kind of tricks they did to make them more interesting and engaging. So that was really, I think, very helpful in the process. Um, And the other thing I was gonna mention is that, so this is my second book. My first book, Divested, um, is a co-author book with Ken Holland. And we wrote more of a macro look at um, finance and inequality and the broader structures. And so for that book, And it's also, it's in with Oxford University Press's trade press route, which is a way of, you know, making academic books really accessible. We wrote that using a lot of economist books as as among our models, both sociologists and economists, and thinking about how they make their work accessible in terms of, um, you know, being able to shape policy um, as well as people in uh work. And then for Hedged Out, I did sort of a similar process where I read there were a lot of anthropologists, for example, whose work I really loved, like Karen Ho's book Liquidated, um, which is an ethnography of Wall Street. And that helped to give me, think, give me some tools for thinking about it, how to write it in a, uh, a way that spoke to me both as a scholar, but also as someone wanting to make an impact. I just thought of a really key part of this puzzle, which is that every piece of writing, especially books, are come from a whole community of people supporting it. Okay. So, this book, you always look at the acknowledgements. There's, you know, I have two writing groups who helped to support me in the process. You'll be surprised by if you ask, you know, people to exchange writing or or to read your work. There are so many people who are willing and excited to do it. Um, so just remember that it's not a solo writing. As a, a book is not a solo effort.
0: Yeah, I mean that's always good to keep in mind. And as we like to joke around at our department, it takes a whole department to raise a PhD student. So we should know that. So it takes uh, lots of people who are working together to uh, finish a book. But that's really insightful thanks a lot for sharing that with us maybe we can just briefly briefly mention uh what will be key takeaways from your book but just to give teaser to to people uh, who can then join us for the event on the 22nd of june at 6 p.m central european time when you will be having one hour q a session with all of us who are interested in your book, who have read it, and will have a possibility to discuss it with you. Sounds great. So I think I wanted to start with the
1: fact that, you know, most people have heard of hedge funds, but don't know what they actually do. And don't worry about that. You don't need to know what a hedge fund is, or even if you're not interested in, in that uh, this book will likely have a lot for you to think about. Um, so hedge funds are small financial firms that pull large sums of money um, from wealthy people as well as institutional investors to invest in the stock market. And what I look at them is from a social, I examine them from a more social perspective of why are they so dominated by these elite white men. And what I find is that they face this uh, an environment where there's an unpredictable and risky stock market. And their prospects of exceedingly high rewards. So they can make so much money because the fees are high and the returns can be very high. So insiders protect their interests and resources by working really long hours and building these tight-knit networks with people who look and behave like them and who can help them get ahead. So by restricting access to outsiders, um, as well as um, oversight from outsiders. So for like regulators and other groups, hedge fund insiders can demand the high pay that widens economic inequality. And the real focus of this book is that when you restrict who can access such enormous rewards and power, you end up with a sphere of society that can really dictate their own terms. And this is happening um, in this context at a level that's unprecedented. So the concentration of wealth um, an authority among these elite white men in the hedge fund industry is on a whole different scale than we've seen um, in, in a long time. And they really insulate themselves from oversight. So they can demand these high fees, pay lower capital gains taxes, and the social world they've created for themselves um, is walled off um, from others and people who aren't like them. And so they've, they've really created this elite environment that restricts access to money, status, and power for a very select few. And hedged out really helps to explain why and how they, how they do this.
0: Absolutely, yes. Um, I was surprised so many times throughout reading the book and I really appreciated that you have actually collected lots of material for your book through doing interviews with people who are actively part of the the industry or were previously working there or were somehow related to it. And lots of, lots of stories that I have read surprised me a lot. I I could... But really lists tons of things that surprised me but I was also wondering how was it for you because when you have chosen the topic you already knew that the inequality was huge so 97% of hedge fund owners were white men so you knew what to expect but still did some of the things that you find out there still surprise you? Absolutely. So I think, um,
1: you know, one um, rule I've always heard is that don't do research if you're not prepared to be surprised, <laughs> because if you already know the answers, you shouldn't be doing it. Um, uh, I, and I, I think that's an important takeaway. And one thing that really surprised me in this and often surprises people is how many academics are drawn into hedge funds. And this came up a lot in my interviews with people with PhDs and everything from uh, linguistics, to artificial intelligence, to economics, to finance, who started off in a career in academia and then had issues come up like funding got cut, um, or you know the postdoc didn't pay enough for to support a family or something issues along those lines. And they needed to kind of rethink their careers. And then somebody in their connect networks or, you know, who they knew from grad school said, well, you know, your training actually makes you great for working in hedge funds. <laughs> so why don't you consider that? And so there's someone along the line that kind of pushes them that way. And I think that's something that, that surprised me because, uh, both because you wouldn't think that it would be such a uh, kind of a brain drain in that way. We, you know, we think of it as like people who have MBAs or um, in finance who've always trained to work in finance. But really, it's a more um, eclectic group of finance workers with kind of more varied interests um, and backgrounds. And, you know, they often say, like, we're, you know, it's such a waste that we ended up here. You know, they I mean, they're kind of jaded about it. And they, I think, describe how they would have liked to have gone on a different path that made kind of a a better impact in society. But they didn't really feel like they had always had those options, which I think is a really um, both like sad um, takeaway and really telling for what society, especially in the United States, invests in and what we prioritize and, and why we need to rethink that. And Then the other surprising takeaway that also pertains um, and is of interest to an, um, a women in economics audience, was how many parallels there are to how this workplace operates. And how academics work. So it's a very apprenticeship model. You don't learn hedge fund investments in school. You do learn them, you know, by working with somebody who has "quote unquote" mastered it. <laughs> and the same thing with academia. We we learn from our mentors. Um, we learn by doing it with them, and that creates a really um, an environment that can really breed. You know, things like bullying and harassment, um, because, you know, it can both create really positive relationships and some of the best, you know, friendships and and connections of your life, you can lead you to really inspiring mentors, but it can also make you really vulnerable uh, because it's so based on those relationships and you learning from that uh, mentor that if you have a mentor who is a a bully um, or a harasser, it's really hard to protect yourself from them. So this is something like in the U.S., um, sexual harassment is highest in the military and second highest in academia. And it's because largely because of this kind of environment, um, these parallels with what happens at hedge funds. And so I find at hedge funds, it creates this you know mat- master-apprentice relationship that breeds patrimonialism. So the system kind of based on close um, ties of, of trust and loyalty that shape who gets access to training, who gets access to opportunities and who gets ahead in the industry. And when I first, especially when I first workshopped um, the first few papers from this this book uh, that led to the book, I had so many academics say, wow, this really reminds me of us. And they were, you know, they also, like I was, this was something that surprised me and it uh, continually surprises readers who are in academics uh, because you would think that high finance would be as different of a a social world from, from, uh, from social scientists as possible, but it, there's more parallels
0: to our own work and lives um, than you would think. So uh, it's not easy, but um, yeah, what you what you said really makes sense. And if I think about it more deeply, <laughs> I really recall a couple of my friends who have their PhDs in physics in biology and who yeah could not land a job in academia and then decided to work either in banks or as you say, inside some other financial institutions. And yeah, maybe we can <laughs> rethink this uh, from a dif- different angle. We need more positions <laughs> for those brilliant people. Because I also feel that those people are a bit disappointed. In the end, they uh, um, get to earn lots of money and that's somehow compensation for leaving the job that they really enjoyed doing but they somehow always feel that they lost because they, they feel that they would be more, much more fulfilled uh, if they continued working in academia and that they would be more useful for society, so to say. At least I have that impression. Um, I just also want to mention to people who are listening to us that, and also to use the opportunity to thank you, Megan, for deciding to give uh, two books to our audience. So uh, follow our social media channels. We will very soon announce what is the way you would be able to win one of those books. And thank you, Megan, for deciding to give us two of those. And maybe we can slowly wrap up our conversation. And I always like to close with a question on whether you would be willing to share with us some of the books or podcasts, YouTube channels um, that are done or created by female and that you like to follow and that you would like to recommend us
1: yes absolutely and i think this is why you know my my takeaways unfortunately led led to a less inspiring note but so i wanted to showcase some books that um or to talk about some books that I've read recently that give us a little bit more inspiration, um, in terms of what can be done to change these kind of issues. So there's two books that I really recommend, um, that are that I've read recently and just felt so inspired by. So one is uh, Sweta Balakrishnan's Accidental Feminism, which looks at elite law firms in India, and that are have more gender parity, and they compare law firms that have you know, more kind of ingrained inequality with respect to gender, with those that have broken those kind of molds and find that by creating, you know, by like institutional investments in new degree programs um, and by engaging with meritocratic belief systems, these this particular types of law firms have really changed how um, they, people within them think about who the ideal worker is, you know, the compatibility of work with family, um, all these, these kind of um, factors that often um, prevent women from excel- from kind of exceed- succeeding the workplace. Another is Catherine Sobering's *The People's Hotel*, which looks at a worker cooperative. It's a a big luxury hotel that was taken over by its workers in Buenos Aires, and they institute all kinds of things like equal pay, um, collective decision making, uh, and job rotations that help to break down the negative ramifications of gender inequality. So while you know uh, the author finds that. There's still some status beliefs that come up that are gendered. Overall, the outcomes are much more equal because these kind of um, uh, procedures um, have been changed to to support women's career. And then, uh, kind of on a on a different note, with thinking about the interplay, and I think a lot of people in this group would be interested both in how. You know, um, in gender equality stems from both the workplace and its interplay with the family. There's a few books I've read recently that really talk about that that are pretty fascinating. So um, Palavi Banerjee's book, The Opportunity Trap, particularly looks at immigrants and their reliance on visas and how that affects relationships and families. Um, from the you know the person who gets the worker's visa, whereas those who are dependent. Uh, Alia Rao's Crunch Time looks at unemployment and how heterosexual couples deal with it um, in the family and how they kind of reorganize household resources to really bolster the man returning to the workplace, but don't do the same for the woman, even if she's the breadwinner, which I thought was a fascinating finding. And then for a European audience, um, Caitlin Collins' Making Motherhood Work compares work family policy in four countries and shows what kind of pol- how policy shapes the kind of guilt and uh, pressures that working mothers face. And it's a really wonderful study that, um, it's an interview study that really shows kind of the interplay of, of individual experiences and pol- big policy decisions um, and how they affect people's lives in meaningful ways. So that's sort of a long list, but um, but I think it gives a little something for everyone uh, who's thinking about these topics. And on a, and a more inspiring note <laughs> to end on. Yes.
0: Many thanks for sharing these with us. I will make sure to link all of them in description of, of this episode. And thanks a lot for joining joining me today and being my guest. I really enjoyed this conversation and I, think, I hope that our audience in, enjoyed as well. I would like to invite everyone to join us on the 22nd of June at 6 p.m. Central European time for a Q&A session with Megan uh, to discuss... Her book, Hashed Out. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much.
1: The views expressed in WE Podcasts are those of the interviewers and the guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinion of the organization, its partners, other members, or any other affiliated people and organizations. We'd also like to thank Maddie Stevenson for writing and recording our original theme song. For anyone who would like to learn more about the Women in Economics initiative, please find us online as well as on most social media channels.